0: Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong.
1: Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. Today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the show Kathleen McGowan, who has had great success in her recently published books, The Expected One, The Book of Love, and now The Poet's Prince. Kathleen, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you. It is so great to be here with you, Peter.
1: Well, thank you. Now you are clearly on a uh, sacred journey of great significance in your own life, and, I, and I'd love to hear how it all began for you.
2: Well, you know, <laughs> like most sacred journeys, uh, it has taken some very unexpected twists uh, along the way. Um, I really started out in life wanting to be an investigative journalist, and that that was where I was going. Um, and I was living in Northern Ireland in the early '80s. Uh, I was living in Ireland proper, and then traveling. Um, covering incidents that had to do with the war, because it was a very war-torn period uh, in the history of that country. Um, and what I discovered um, as I was trying to write about these issues and get people interested in what was happening and draw attention to some of the things in Ireland um, was that when I would be in the middle of a, a major uh, a major life-changing event, some kind of usual, usually a tragedy, uh, a bombing, a shooting, a riot, um, when I would read about what happened the next day in the newspapers, it never bore any resemblance to what I'd witnessed. Um, and this started to become a trend. I started to realize that everything that I was reading that was reported in the papers, and I would buy all of them. I wouldn't just buy one or two. I would go to the news agents and buy 12 papers at a time to read all the perspectives on what had happened the day before. And in my, you know, sort of young impressionistic uh, journalism days, I realized that um, reporting wasn't about telling the truth. That There was absolutely nothing about telling the truth that, um, that was coming up at all. It was all about reporting a perspective that furthered an agenda, socially or politically, that you wanted to further as a writer or as a publication. And this was a huge wake-up call for me. It was a big aha moment because I realized, oh my gosh, history is not what happened. History is what's written down. History is how it is recorded by whoever is the observer or whoever has the point of view that they want to put across and is able to do it in the strongest way. And this also takes us to the idea that history is written by the winners, right? And in most cases in history, written by the oppressors. So this was this was the time period that really woke me up and made me say, I don't know that I trust anything in history books anymore. Because if this is true today, what does it mean the farther back you go? The farther back you go, isn't it going to be more and more likely that what we accept as history um, is the truth? Is not the, um, what we accept as history is not the truth. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and so then you decided um, to focus your attention on uh, the women of history.
2: Well, I realized. Look, if I, any, anyone had been maligned and misunderstood in history, there were there were two elements that I found um, to be consistent threads in this idea, and that were that those threads were women and spirituality. So, <laughs> women were repeatedly either eradicated from history. Um, or deliberately misinterpreted, maligned, misunderstood, scapegoated. Remember that through a large period of history, um, what we accept as the recorded version of history came through usually the Church. Uh, I went through a very long period of time where the Church was not recording the actions of women as important, so a lot of women were lost. But also when you start talking about spiritual history, um, the history of our human spiritual evolution, Again, if the primary history makers and recorders are a specific dogmatic sect, they're going to record the history exactly the way they want you to know it. So what we have is a very skewed uh, medieval Catholic point of view on a lot of history. And so I said, okay, now I want to write about women, and I want to write about spirituality, and what do I do? If I can't trust history books, where do I go next?
1: so how did you begin to to access and get through to the actual truth of the situation?
2: Well, you know, I think it started really, again, with with me coming from an Irish family and having uh, a strong Celtic background. We're storytellers, uh, and we have a a strong belief in the powers of the oral tradition. So starting with my time in Ireland, I realized that uh, the truth was kept in the people, The people had the true stories of history, um, and that those stories were not simply oral traditions that were handed down, but they existed in the land itself and in the cultures. So, for example, um, festivals, place names, uh, traditions, architecture, art, there are so many different ways in which the truth of how a people lived Um, are encoded in the land or deliberately recorded in a way where they're protected. And so that became my motto. My motto became beyond the books. I was going to go beyond the books and find history where it lived. And I really felt that it was in getting to the spirit of the people. um, I was going to get so much more out of what history really was than in reading uh, a text that might have been written by someone with a very specific agenda.
1: And I guess at some point you made a huge decision, which was to to wrap a lot of uh, non-fictional material and information into fictional stories.
2: Well, well, and that was another big shift for me because um, because I had a journalism background. When I first went on this journey, um, I went on a journey to write a book about women in history who had been maligned and misunderstood, but I was going to write a very solid non-fiction book using a journalism background to get to the root of it. And there, you know, the spiritual story behind it is... Um, No matter what I did, I ran up against roadblocks. Uh, I couldn't get it published. I couldn't get people interested in it. There were all kinds of reasons why it was rejected. Now, what I have since learned in my spiritual journey is that rejection is God's way of protecting you. Uh, Rejection is God's way of saying, you are on the wrong path. And when enough doors are closed in your face, you have to stop and reconsider your path. And that's what happened with me. I kept trying to publish the nonfiction. I kept trying to get people to care about it. And I was consistently rejected. But I knew the material was good. More importantly, I knew the material mattered. I knew that some of it was earth-shattering, even life-changing. So I had to come up with a new perspective. And what I realized was I was being moved, um, whether it was by my higher self or by some kind of guidance, to change the way I was going to tell these stories. And that's what moved me ultimately to write fiction. Um, I realized as I started to make this transition that people learn better when they're emotionally engaged. Um, So if you can entertain someone and emotionally engage them, it's so much more powerful than reading uh, what could be a dry piece of nonfiction. And that became, I think, the secret to the success of telling these stories, was creating a circumstance in which people could learn the information while being emotionally attached to the characters.
1: You certainly captured the, uh, you, you can't put the book down, Energy in your writing—it's very once you start a book, it's very hard to put it down. And so, were you surprised by people's responses to to your first uh, book, the expected one?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it was—it it certainly exceeded all, all expectations I, I had. As I said, I had a tremendous faith in the book um, because I knew that the information in it was important. And I, you know, took—I wrote it over the course of about ten years, and I was very, very careful. It took a number of different shapes before it actually became the book that I ultimately published. Um, because it was such a journey book. When I first wrote the book, I only told it from the point of view of the first century. It was strictly Mary Magdalene's story. Um, and then ultimately, again, in one of those aha moments, I thought, you know, this is not just Mary Magdalene's story. This is my story. This is the story of my journey and how I found her and the extraordinary things that happened to me along the way. And that's when The Expected One was really born. When I began to weave the modern character and her journey of discovery with the first century and what she uncovers, that was when I knew that I had the alchemical formula that I was looking for. Because I wanted to create a situation wherein my modern readers could really connect as modern people uncovering this information, that they could really go along on that journey with me. I could take them along. And so that's what I wanted to do, and it has been phenomenally successful, and I'm incredibly grateful um, at the response that I've gotten. As as you know, The Expected One uh, is now a million copies sold all over the world. It's in 50 countries. It's in over 30 languages. uh, And I'm just so grateful for the response.
1: Perhaps uh, for those people who haven't read it yet, and I absolutely advise everybody listening to do so, you could just explain what The Expected One means.
2: The Expected One is based on an ancient prophecy um, that was discovered in a Belgian monastery. A series of prophecies that were discovered in a Belgian monastery that came out of the Middle Ages, um, but may be older, uh, copied from something that was older. And basically it is a prophecy that a a certain group of women will come forward at different times in history, uh, and they will be known as the expected ones. And those women, their job is to come forward and tell the truth. They're storytellers. They're prophetesses. They're truth-tellers. So, for the last 2,000 years, there have been these women in this lineage. Um, All of the books that I write come under the heading of The Magdalene Line. The series is called The Magdalene Line, and the expected one is the first book of The Magdalene Line. But The Magdalene Line refers to a lineage of people who are descended from Mary Magdalene who have kept these truths alive in Europe. And when I say descended, I mean not just descended in a bloodline way, but in a spiritual way. They kept alive these beautiful, pure traditions that came from Jesus and Mary Magdalene that were completely separate from the more dogmatic, uh, political, and financial uh, information that was coming out of Rome proper.
1: So uh, you you have a series of of women who, who are coming forward, um, how, how have you subsequently chosen those those women?
2: Um, I think those women choose me. <laughs> ah. um, uh, you know, it's interesting because this has actually recently just happened to me. I think I will begin... Uh, I think I'll, when I begin to write a book, I think I'm pretty clear on what it's going to be. But every time I sit down to write and really immerse myself uh, in that book, it tends to take on a life of its own. There is always a character who demands to be heard. Um, In my second book, The Book of Love, I did not set out to write a book about this extraordinary woman uh, in Italian history, Matilda of Tuscany, who changed the world, and yet no one knew who she was. Um, She was going to be uh, a side character, a supporting character in that book, but she was so extraordinary that she literally took over my life during the writing and demanded that I write a book about her.
1: So Kathleen, we're coming up to our first break, and I'd love to talk further about how these characters come to you after this break. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation.
0: Be Extraordinary.
2: Seventh Wave Network.
0: walk our true spiritual path at a time when the western world is fixated on material gain more people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life there is another way years ago, Peter Tong left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm. The Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Visit PeterTongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at PeterTongue.com. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern, with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the Seventh Wave Network.
3: What's it like?
0: What's it like? It's lonely. It's really lonely.
3: I miss my brother.
0: I miss my brother.
3: I'm surrounded by other people, but it's not the same. I've
0: got other people around me, but it's not the same.
3: Go to jail for a gun crime and your family serves a sentence with you. Something to think about before committing a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council.
0: The new home for visionary positive change.
2: Seventh Wave Network.
0: Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
1: Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tongue. Just a reminder to tune into my website, ww.petertung.com and ww dot com where you'll see a lot of the work that we do on both websites to support humanity in this uh, current shift and moving into our heart centers, the Ambassadors of Light program and the current tele-seminar series that I am hosting on My Heart Center Journey. So please do check those out. I'm delighted to have with me today Kathleen McGowan, beautiful uh, series of books, the Magdalene series. And just before the break, Kathleen, you started telling us a little bit about your connection to the, the uh, women in history who have really come to you to, to reveal the truth of, of their stories. And I'd love to hear more about the spiritual connection that you have with these women.
2: Well, I, I actually love this part of the subject. Uh, and I'm very fond of saying that the beautiful thing about discovering fiction is that writing fiction gave me so much more freedom to tell the truth. Um, And by that, I mean things that I went through spiritually to uncover these characters are things I could have never uh, discussed in a nonfiction setting. So, for example, in The Expected One, my character has visions of Mary Magdalene. She dreams about her. Uh, She sees her in these very visceral ways, and that inspires her to uh, make certain decisions. Well, the exact same thing happened to me, uh, and I was able to weave that into the fiction. and It's actually become a key part of the fiction. But one of the reasons it matters is this. Um, when I publish The Expected One, in the back of the book, in the author's notes, I, I talk about this. I say, look, I had these same experiences. And, um, um, sorry, someone just came the room. Um, okay. <laughs> I had these same experiences as my character does uh, in the book. But I was told by so many people, don't talk about this. Don't write about it. Don't tell people you had visions. People will think you were crazy. Uh, and what I realized is I had to tell the truth. I had to be authentic about this information. I had to uh, reveal to people that I'd had these dreams and these visions. I just felt like I had to do it. And I will tell you, over the last five years since the expected one came out, what has happened is I've received so much mail from people who have said, thank you for telling me this. Thank you for being honest and giving me permission to to know that I'm not crazy, because a lot of people out there are having mystical experiences, and they've never been given permission to really talk about it. So I think that was one of the things that was incredibly important for me was the expected one. Um, But for in every single one of the books that I have written, uh, and I'm now writing book four, um, these women who have come to me, have done so in different ways. Again, dreams, um, not so much visions. Mary Magdalene was only the only one who I ever actually really saw standing in my doorway. Um, but I have a lot of dreams about these women. I will wake up with full scenes from books completely in my head, totally fleshed out. I know everything that happens. Uh, I know what all the dialogue is. They just sort of appear to me. So it's been an incredibly magical process.
1: So how do you then put that? So, so cause I, know, I know from my own experience of of working with people who have visions and dreams and actually have great difficulty putting that information and that awareness into a written form, taking it from a multidimensional experience to a two-dimensional one of writing on a page. So how do you manage to incorporate the richness of the experience into words?
2: Well, it's always tricky. I mean, trying to describe um, a vision or what it feels like when something like that happens, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge as a writer. I mean, it was probably one of the more difficult things that I did. Um, but I think it's an exciting challenge, and I think it's a fun challenge. Uh, in terms of how the visions and the dreams actually inform the characters, um, you know, that's the piece that I think is easier. You know, if I wake up with a fully formed vision of Anne Boleyn and the Tower in my head, and I can run to my keyboard, I can get that down on paper really quickly. And, it's, you know, it's more like, it's almost like these women share their memories with me. I think that's the best way that I can describe it. All of a sudden I will feel like I'm seeing something the way that this character was remembering it herself. And then I will just, you know, try my best to get that down on paper and then make that all work together. I mean, for, I feel like it's a tremendous gift um, that I am given this information. And, and again, I, I know that you know some people probably listen to it and go, mm, you know, I don't know about that. Um, it's not channeling. It's just tapping into something um, that I think is out there. And I don't know if it's a collective unconscious thing. It's because the history has imprinted itself and is just waiting to be discovered. Um, all I know is that the experience is entirely visceral and real and rich, and it has been so important in the informing of my characters and the rest of the writing.
1: Now, uh, in, your, in your books, the, your protag- uh, protagonist, Maureen, um, gets herself into some dangerous predicaments at times. Um, has, how has that played out in your own personal life?
2: Well, unfortunately, it has played out in my own personal life. Um, when you write about religion of any kind and take a controversial position, I think that you have to know that there is potential danger involved. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate, but it's also the truth. Uh, and I have definitely been through circumstances where uh, I felt threatened, and in one or two circumstances where I actually felt like my, like my life was seriously in danger. Um, that happened for the most part in, in Europe. I have had one sort of you know, unpleasant experience here in the States. Um, I certainly had death threats on my first book tour, and uh, when the expected one first came out, particularly the expected one, I think because it is such a visceral experience. Um, But also it came out at about the same time that all the Da Vinci Code hysteria was happening. Um, So there was a lot of focus on this idea of Jesus being married and what did it mean and was it blasphemy. Um, So that was a very tumultuous time, and that was when I sort of had the majority of the death threats. Although I will say that when the Book of Love came out last year, I had to cancel my book tour um, because – coming up to uh, the, the book tour and the, the celebration party for its launch, uh, I received a particularly disturbing death threat, and we all thought we needed to take it seriously, so I did have to stay out of the public eye for quite a long time.
1: Wow, that's, uh, that's remarkable. I wasn't expecting that answer when I yeah. asked the question. <laughs> wow, incredible. Now, you obviously, uh, as well as having had the visions and the dreams uh, and, and the incredible connection directly to uh, these women... You also have a lot of uh, inside information uh, from other sources. Um, Where has that come from?
2: Well, because I've been doing this work for 20 years, uh, and I have really worked very, very hard to establish deep personal connections uh, with people throughout Europe. And, you know, it's always interesting to talk to, um, you know, American and Canadian uh, audiences about this, although I find that the Canadians are much more open-minded about it. Um, American audiences tend to be, uh, a little close-minded about the whole idea of secret societies they you know to them it it all feels kind of made up but when you're in europe it's very common um... there's all kinds of information that's that's held by um, you know what for lack of a better term really are secret societies or, or groups that are at least very private with their information And you have to work really really hard to become a part of that Uh, And I have, and I have been blessed to be let in uh, by a number of people who have been Keepers of the Secrets for a very, very long time. Uh, And they let me in because they trusted me. They let me in because of family connections. Uh, And so as a result, um, I have been privy to some really fascinating information. Um, I have been given some extraordinary relics, um, one of which I'm wearing around my neck right now. And um, it's just, it's been a remarkable experience. I mean, everything about it has been completely magical. And and I always say that as crazy as my characters' experiences are, um, I can't write about the real crazy ones. I mean, (laughs) the truth is so much stranger and more exotic than fiction. It's been an incredible journey.
1: I was actually going to ask you at the end of the show, but I might as well ask you now, If having revealed as much as you have, are there more shocking revelations to come? And I guess the answer is yes. The
2: answer is there's so much more. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, we'll look forward to that as it, all, as it all unravels. One of the questions I did want to ask you at this stage was, was why is it so important to get the message out now about these women? Why, why is it so important in this moment in, in history, in our, in our present lifetime?
2: Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, And, you know, as my character says in the expected one, because it's time. Uh, But why is it time? And, and, you know, here's the thing. As as we look around for what's happened in the last hundred years, in the last hundred years of history, we've had the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels, right, the Nag Hammadi Scrolls. Um, So much more material over the last century uh, has been appearing to us. uh, the, the Judas Gospel, a lot of different things are coming to light. More archaeological discoveries are happening. And it just feels like things are just waiting to explode from the surface, and it's time to reveal the truth. Does it have something to do with the millennial shift? Absolutely. Does it have something to do with 2012? I think it maybe does. Um, you know, I wrote my third book, The Poet Prince, about the birth of the Renaissance for exactly this reason. The Poet Prince is about the incredible minds and spirits and people who brought about this golden age that was the Renaissance. And I wanted to write that book right now because I think we need that kind of inspiration. I think that we are coming out of ourselves a very dark age, and we are on the verge of creating something that is beautiful and golden and brings us back into the light. So I think that we need to be inspired by those people who have successfully done that. Um, so I do think that it's time. I think that we are, you know, it's the tipping point. We have reached a place where it's in our hands. We can either allow this dark period to perpetuate or we can grab it and take it and move it forward into this beautiful place of creating a golden age. And that's what I want to do, and that's what I want to inspire other people to do.
1: And you've already mentioned, Just uh, we just got one minute to the next break, that your next book, is about Anne Boleyn.
2: Yes, and um, (laughs) I had not intended to write a book about Anne Boleyn. In fact, she was not on my radar at all, but she kept coming back. She kept coming up. And I said, I'm not writing a book about Anne Boleyn. I'm not writing a book about Anne Boleyn. I'm writing a book about Anne Boleyn.
1: Wow. Well, that will be something for us to look forward to. When do you expect that to be out?
2: Uh, well, I'm working on it right now. There is a fiction and a non-fiction book, which is something that I have not done before. But the research into Anne Boleyn is so important um, because, really, in all of my 20 years, I have never found anyone who has been so deliberately and intentionally misunderstood and maligned as Anne Boleyn.
1: Wow. Well, that's something for us to look forward to, certainly, Kathleen. We're coming up to our second break. This is Peter Tong talking with Kathleen McGowan, and I'm looking to uh, looking forward to chatting about the book of love after the break.
2: to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network.
3: Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this
2: girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh, anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people grunt if you have to grunt yeah be like try it Uh.
0: Uh. (laughs) see there you go and you should dress up start wearing a shirt and tie i'll look like a dork
2: no you'll look successful okay and finally you can start using my cologne the ladies love it so don't be shy splash it on Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at AdoptUSKids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council
0: walk our true spiritual path at a time when the western world is fixated on material gain more people are now recognizing the emptiness which comes with this limited approach to life there is another way years ago, Peter Tung left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm, the awakening to conscious co-creation. Visit PeterTongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at PeterTongue.com.
2: listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network.
0: listening to awakening to conscious co-creation with peter tongue if you have a question for peter or comment on this series please send an email to descending at gmail.com that's descending at gmail.com now back to our program
1: welcome back to awakening to conscious co-creation with your host peter tongue and I'm having a fascinating discussion with Kathleen McGowan today. We could talk for the rest of the day about many of the topics that I uh, share a tremendous interest in. Before we move on, Kathleen, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about why it was that the Cathars of uh, southern France were such a threat to the Catholic Church and the King of France that they were the only crusade led against uh, their own people.
2: Yeah, such an important question. Um, The Cathars, for those who are not aware, um, were a sect um, of medieval Christians who were almost completely wiped out um, by the Catholic Church and, as you say, the only crusade ever declared um, on Christians by Christians. Uh, there were Cathars in southwestern France and Cathars in Italy, all of whom were massacred, hundreds of thousands. We don't know the exact number. It might have been as many as a million. Um, but make no mistake, this was genocide. It was the intent to eradicate an entire culture of people. Um, and to answer your question, why, why is this? Um the Cathars were, they're so misunderstood and in the information that is out there about them, most of the information, again, here's our history problem, that exists on the Cathars comes from the Inquisition. Uh, Inquisition records, either information that was extracted under torture or information that the Inquisition put together in order to make the Cathars look bad, but when you dig into it, what you discover is a sect of people who, first of all, are essentially indigenous. They have been there uh, since the arrival of Mary Magdalene and the early Christians in the first century, Um, and they are practicing this extraordinary, pure, beautiful form of Christianity that has never been touched by the dogma of the Roman Church. So it is really basic. It's beautiful, and it's pure, and it's love, it's faith. It's community, it's charity, Um, but nowhere is it about having a middleman or being in a structure or politics or economics. Um, And as this beautiful, pure form of Christianity begins to grow and begins to spread across Europe, it's incredibly threatening uh, to the Catholic Church, who has their own version uh, and who requires absolute obedience um, from its adherence to whatever it is that they are telling you to believe. Um, so, for the traditional evolving Roman Catholic Church, it's all about power. From the Cathar people, it's all about authenticity, truth, love. Um, but you can't make money on truth and love. So, in addition to this, the Cathars had in their possession a number of uh, documents, relics, etc., that proved their reality, that proved that they were the true descendants of Jesus. Um, not just biologically, again, but spiritually. We're talking about the descendants spiritually of Jesus here, the ones who are carrying true teachings. And one of these documents that they had was the Book of Love, um, which is what I wrote my second book about, this idea that the Catholics had in their possession, an extraordinary document that gave them their authority, that said, we are what we say we are. And I believe strongly that the, a lot of the Crusades were about not just eradicating Catharism, but also making sure that the Church had in their possession all of this documented proof that the Cathars had that they were truly descended from Jesus.
1: And so that brings us to the, to the second book, The Book of Love. So just, just give us a, uh, an overview of, of, of the importance of The Book of Love.
2: Well, I first uncovered the idea of The Book of Love in 1995 when I was in the rennes Chateau area in the southwest of France. Uh, And I kept coming across it, and then I came across it in a a couple of references in um, Inquisition documents that the Cathars claimed to have this book of love. Uh, And then no one could tell me what it was. And then ultimately, um, through the digging, I discovered references to it being a book that was written in Jesus' own hand. And that just stopped me in my tracks. I said, wait a minute, how is it possible? How is it possible that there could even have... maybe been a gospel that Jesus wrote himself and no one has ever heard of it. I was, I was dumbfounded by this idea. But then I also realized nothing could be more dangerous, nothing could possibly be more dangerous to the Roman Catholic Church in its empire and its establishment than a document in Jesus' own hand that had teachings entirely different from what they were teaching. And now all of a sudden this made a lot more sense to me. This this explained attempted genocide to me. Um, and then I also realized that... When you are talking about a document that is so important, that is so spiritually powerful, that is so explosive, that both sides want to keep it a secret, those who revere it want to keep it a secret, and those who despise it want to keep it a secret. And as a result, it becomes one of the greatest secrets of human history. So my quest to find the Book of Love, its history, where it it might have been hidden, why we've never heard of it, and then most importantly, what's in it is what inspired my second book, The Book of Love. And while I love all of my work, it's, you know, ha- writing books is kind of like having children. You love all of your children, uh, and you don't have favorites, but I will say that I believe that The Book of Love is the most important thing uh, I have ever written and probably will ever write, because I think it's so important that people are aware of this idea.
1: Now, I know uh, that you use little uh, repeating phrases from time to time, and one of those is, those with ears to hear. What does that mean exactly?
2: For those with eyes to see and those with ears to hear. What we know about uh, the early Christians is that there was a lot of encoding going on um, because it was very dangerous for them to actually you know, write verbatim what they believed and record what they believed, there were a lot of codes used. Um, and we see this throughout heretical or Gnostic or alternative Christianity over um, the last 2,000 years, it still happens. Uh, so in other words, whether it's encoding it in the art, which is what Botticelli and Michelangelo were doing, or encoding it in the way that something is written, we even know that the canonical Gospels are encoded. There are elements to those Gospels that... Uh, They can only be recognized by the people who knew the language. They would, you know, so a word that might seem like a a normal, you you know, average word to us, to somebody else is a code. It says, oh, wait a minute, when they talk about bread, they're actually talking about the true teachings. So when they talk about getting manna from heaven, or that's what they're talking about. They're talking about these true spiritual teachings that are coming through. So bread, for example, doesn't mean bread. Um, So it's about knowing what the words are. It's about having eyes to see and ears to hear. But there is a spiritual aspect to it, too. And the spiritual aspect is being open, being open to the understanding that there is so much more going on out there than what we have been trained to believe in our more dogmatic perspective that has been fed to us.
1: And talking about encoded, I'd love to hear you talk about the prophecies of uh, Nostradamus. Ah, oh my. <laughs> well, that's all about
2: Nostradamus is such a big subject for me right now because I have been through a tremendous evolution on how I feel about Nostradamus. Um, in the expected one, I take a pretty harsh line on him. Uh, because at the time I wrote it, that's how I felt. I had discovered that his material, uh, that the prophecies, were not his. Um, he had discovered them in uh, a number of Belgian abbeys. Um, he had studied at uh, Orval, which is one of the abbeys I write about, and several other abbeys in Belgium. And in the course of doing that, had uncovered these medieval documents that were, um, filled with these prophecies. And that essentially what he did is he retold them in his own way in the quatrains, uh, in what we now know as the centuries. So I, my initial thought was that Nostradamus was a great plagiarist. Um, and that was kind of the position I took for a while. But what I realized as I continued to work and do more research and meet with more experts is that that was not the case at all. I had done Nostradamus a tremendous disservice. Nostradamus was not a plagiarist. Nostradamus was helping to get these prophecies out in a way that they could not have gotten out otherwise. These prophecies, for the most part, were written and created by women. And one of the things that most people don't realize is that his family, his family name was not originally Nostradamus. They changed their name. They changed their name. His name becomes Michelle de Notre Dame. The Archangel Michael of Our Lady is what his name means. Now, this becomes extremely important, because when he publishes his prophecies, it's the prophecies of Notre Dame, the prophecies of Our Lady. So the encoding is even in his name. He writes letters to his son later on in his life where he actually says, I had to burn the original documents today, because I think people are coming to try to find them, and it's too dangerous, we could all die as heretics if they're found, so I had to burn all the original source material. So this is not just a theory. There's a lot of information here where he talks about how much danger he's in for actually protecting and then disseminating these ancient prophecies, which I believe, by the way, were prophecies of the expected ones.
1: You you just brought up another interesting connection here, which which is the connection with Our Lady and Archangel Michael. And you also write about Michelangelo, who also has that name of Archangel Michael. So can you just talk a little bit about that connection
2: Yes, and I will tell you that the Archangel Michael is going to show up in a much bigger way in my work over the next uh, year or two because he's showing up in a much bigger way in my life all of a sudden. Um, but it's a really important question about Michelangelo, and I go into this in uh, my latest book, The Poet Prince. I talk about these artists and the fact that this is not an accident. This is It's not a happy accident that these extraordinary talents were all concentrated in this one place, at one time, um, there is some divine plan happening here to bring all these people here at once, and I think it's happening again in our time, by the way. Um, but a lot of these children, a lot of these artists, were expected. Um, what I, one of the things I write about in this book is that there was a there was a magi group, there was an astrological group of essentially mystics and shamans who were predicting the birth of important children from important families, and Michelangelo's family was important um, in this lineage. So what happens is when he is expected and his birth chart is extraordinary, they say this is going to be a golden child. And the prediction is that he is a type of angelic being, so he is given the name Archangel Michael michelangelo this was not a common name in its time this was not something that people did so it was extraordinary that he was named after the archangel michael and i think that we can all agree that he had certainly a divine gift for channeling divine information and energy into his artwork i think he was an angel incarnate
1: so once again much of the artwork uh, had hidden information and codes within it
2: Oh, absolutely, and, you know, the elephant in the room, and we talk about this, is always the Da Vinci Code, so I just kind of need to get that out of the way, um, and say, you know, Leonardo da Vinci gets an awful lot of attention um, for being sort of the, the scribe of the Renaissance, and it's really inaccurate, it's really not true. Uh, I You know, I'm very strong about that in The Poet Prince, because it's Michelangelo and Botticelli who are really the scribes of God, who are really expressing this in their art. Um, Leonardo only accomplished about a dozen or, you know, a handful more of paintings of his entire life, whereas Michelangelo and Botticelli were making hundreds and hundreds of pieces of art. Every single one of them is encoded. Every single one of them has beautiful information about this really important concept that shows up in Gnostic Christianity, um, alternative Christianity, heretical Christianity, whatever you want to call it, and it comes from the Gnostic Gospels, and it says this. You must resurrect while in this body. And that was a very heretical concept because the idea was be here, be present, love being here. You incarnated for a reason. Enjoy it and don't be focused on the afterlife. And a lot of what Botticelli is painting is about the celebration of being here, being now, in this body, and what we are capable of doing, what our human potential is, and how we can hearken back to the great wisdom of the ancients to even enhance our experience here on Earth.
1: That's a pretty profound and and true statement. I I really appreciate that. We're coming up to our final break right now, Kathleen. And when we come back, I do want to touch on my favorite subject, which is Chartres Cathedral and the Labyrinth there. This is Peter Tong for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation.
0: Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond.
2: 7th Wave Network.
0: How do we walk our true spiritual path at a time when the Western world is fixated on material gain? More people are now recognizing the emptiness, which comes with this limited approach to life. There is another way years ago, Peter Tong left his position as a high school principal with 30 years experience in the education system and turned to his true calling of a metaphysical life. He now uses his experience and wisdom to provide solutions to personal and organizational challenges. Peter offers corporate workshops and seminars, public meditations, radio interviews, healing sessions, and community visits to bring awareness of the new paradigm. The Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Visit PeterTongue.com today to register for events and to purchase his transformative visualization meditation CDs. You can also download the meditation CDs as MP3s if you wish for listening on your computer or on the go. These are available now at PeterTongue.com.
3: When you have a stroke, you may not even notice it right away. But then... Time passes, and the symptoms get worse. One minute you feel fine, and the next, your speech could be slurred or not make sense. One side of your body might become numb. You might see double. You drop the TV remote because you can't hold up your arm. That's because after a stroke, every minute you don't get help is another minute that your brain is being starved of oxygen. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face, arm, or leg, sudden trouble seeing, speaking, or understanding. If you experience any of these warning signs, call 911 immediately because time lost is brain lost. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-Stroke today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council.
0: Be extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program.
1: Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung, and just a reminder to check out my website, ww.petertung.com and also www.myheartcenteredjourney.com. as we move into this very critical time in the world. As Kathleen is talking about on the show today, we, we need to come together and create these beautiful containers of light and love. So please do visit myheartcenteredjourney.com. Kathleen, before the break, I, I was uh, inviting you to talk about Chartres Cathedral and the labyrinth, one of my favorite topics.
2: Um certainly one of my favorite topics too uh, and one of my favorite places in the world if not my favorite I think in so many ways I I feel like Charta is my spiritual homeland Um, and as you are aware but others may not be there has been a spiritual site in that region um, for as long as anyone can remember as far back as human history goes and is recorded um, that area has been sacred ground um, and so, you know, where the cathedral sits, is, is such a powerful place to begin with. But one of the things I talk about in my books is that Chart is a book in stone, and it's not just any book in stone, it's the book of love in stone. Every piece of that cathedral, every inch of it is uh, created with this incredible intention towards love and wisdom. Um, and... It's in the stained glass, it's in the statuary, and certainly it's in the labyrinth. And the labyrinth is such an extraordinary feature. Um, there were labyrinths built in a number of the Gothic cathedrals. Um, several are left. Amiens is left. St. Quentin is left. But Chartres is the grand dame, isn't it? It is the great one. Um, and the Chartres labyrinth is the ultimate tool um, for us to reach God. I mean, it is... It is such a powerful tool for for a a walking prayer. And what I love about the labyrinth is that the average person, especially in the 21st century, is not very good at contemplating their navel. They're not really good at meditation. None of us sit still very well. I know I don't. Um, So the, the labyrinth gives us this ability to pray and meditate while we're walking. And so it's literally holistic. We are using our minds, our bodies, and our spirits as we are walking the labyrinth. What I always say to people is walking into the labyrinth is like dialing the 1-800 number to God. You know, it's just really allowing you to connect uh, to the divine in in a way that it's completely unique and by the time you reach the center there is so much to be done there there's so much fantastic information Um, there's peace there's whatever you're looking for you will find in the center of the labyrinth
1: it really is a special opportunity and everything is set up for you to have that connection to, to spirit isn't it
2: it is, and unfortunately, this is another thing that made the labyrinths dangerous. Um, a lot of the labyrinths, especially through like the 18th century, were destroyed. Um, they came in with sledgehammers and took the labyrinths out. Um, because again, we went through this period, and I don't know that we've really come that much farther in the 21st century in terms of, um, overall organized religion, where it was not okay for us to have a direct connection with God. Um, this idea of, which is a Gnostic idea, right, that it's you and God. Jesus says, go into your room and close the door and talk to God. That's what he says. He doesn't say, go to church. He doesn't say, talk to your priest. He says, go in your room and talk to God yourself. And that's what the labyrinth allowed us to do. And therefore, again, they became dangerous. And so to this day, um, the church still finds the labyrinth dangerous. And unfortunately, the labyrinth at Shart, which I believe is the greatest prayer tool on the planet, is most of the time covered up and vandalized by the church, they covered up with chairs. The chairs are damaging the labyrinth, but most importantly, the church is keeping us from having the ability to walk the labyrinth.
1: And isn't that sad? <laughs> a couple of times I've been there, it hasn't been open, and, and it's it's very very challenging. We we need to to move on, and we need to talk a little bit about uh, the poet prince. And one of the expressions used in the in the poet prince, uh, which you started using in the book of love, is the time returns. Right. So let's talk uh, just for a couple of minutes on on this, uh, Kathleen.
2: Well, there are so many, you know, sort of different ways to come at this idea that time returns. Uh, The poet prince who I write about in the book is Lorenzo de' Medici, who is the godfather of the Renaissance. And he used to carry a banner from the time he was 19 years old that said in French, the time returns. And no one really ever understood it, because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. It was the initiated who understood. And what Lorenzo understood was... There are times in history, there are cycles when, when a group of incredibly enlightened people will come back. And I don't mean a little group. This is not an elitist thing. I mean hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people come back at a time to change the world. And this is certainly what was happening in the Renaissance. Lorenzo knew it. He recognized it, and he took the role of being the leader of a golden age by knowing that the time returns. And the reason I'm writing about it so much right now is I believe that the time returns right now. I believe we are living in a time in history where there are hundreds of thousands of unique, powerful, special people uh, arriving every day. Look at the extraordinary children who are coming into the world right now. Um, Arriving every day to change the world and lead us out of this dark place into a more golden age. So when I say the time returns, that's what it means. We're we at a period in history, and maybe it's the 2012 uh, episode, because you know the whole concept of the apocalypse is the unveiling. That's what apocalypse means in Greek. Most people don't realize that. It means the unveiling of the bride. So maybe we are unveiling this beauty that is time, the time returns. It's time for the beauty to come back to
1: us. Well, it certainly is, and, uh, and I really appreciate you've crammed an incredible amount of, uh, of information into this uh, show, uh, and I'm looking forward to listening to it myself. It's been phenomenal. So Kathleen, for those who people who wish to check up your work and uh, get the, the new book, The Poet Prince, just give us your website and information
2: yeah my website is kathleenmcgowan.com m-c-g-o-w-a-n we just had a little meltdown on the website so it's under construction but there is some information up there on how to order the book there's also uh, a place where you can sign up for my mailing list where i'll keep you posted also very active on facebook Um, you can go in and put in Kathleen McGowan on facebook and uh, join us I, i do my research live online every day i'm always posting something that i'm working on and you can come in and be part of the work and be part of the dialogue we have a great time
1: Well, Kathleen, thank you so much, and I really appreciate the time. I know you're very, very busy at the moment, Your time you've given us today to tell us all this very, very valuable and important information. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so very much.
2: Oh, absolutely. My joy to be here. Thanks, Peter, for having me.
1: Thank you. Well, that was a whirlwind of a show, and now it's gone so quickly, but absolutely phenomenal information. Do remember you can listen to this show archived whenever you wish to. Visit my website, PeterTongue.com. Sign up for my monthly newsletter. Follow me on Twitter, join the Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation Facebook group, or join my mailing list for regular updates, as well as heartcenterjourney.com. And talking about the children, my guest next week is Christina Pearson, who has written a book about her own experiences with her three psychic children, going from a place of knowing absolutely nothing about this realm, to now writing a, a very, very uh, worthwhile book to help parents understand uh, how to work with and support their mm-hmm gifted psychic children hope you've enjoyed today's show have a great week this is peter tongue awakening to conscious co-creation
0: we hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring please join host peter tongue for another edition of awakening to conscious creation next wednesday at 3 p.m eastern time noon pacific time on seventh wave network